On my last trip to Paris, I found myself battling a blustery gale to get to some of my favourite haunts before the habitual dash to the Gardinor and an impatiently waiting train. Having lived in the French capital for three years, I knew exactly where my brief hour should be spent. First on the list, the chocolatier de Beuve and Galais. This emporium of refined specialities is always tended by assistants, whose knowledge and attention to every nuance of bitter chocolate ganache, pralines or truffle is what makes the experience worth repeating. This reverence for something as simple as a box of chocolates is what I miss about Paris. Whether it's spending time talking extensively to your fishmonger or the attention of my local gantier in choosing winter gloves, every quotidian detail is worth consideration. This episode of Confect Corner is an ode to those purveyors of beautiful things made well, and not just in France. We take a spin on a finely honed Swiss toboggan too and meet a maker of exquisite lingerie. And since it's February, we ponder the sport of matchmaking, a craft in itself. This is Confect Corner, and I'm Sophie Grove. For autumn, winter 22, I'm looking at pasta and showgirls. <laughs> it's a kind of almond pastry cookies that are from south of Spain that are like a little, let's say, desert storm in your mouth. Welcome to the 12th episode of Confect Corner. I'm Sophie Grove here in London and I'm joined by my co-hosts Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak in Zurich. Hello both. Hi. Hi Sophie, Marcella. Hello Gillian. Hello Sophie. As long-term listeners will know, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention. Seeing as this is the first episode of the year, I thought it would be nice to talk about something that's setting the tone for our year. Uh, whether that's a new restaurant or a destination to head to or a fashion label to keep on our radar in 2022. Marcella, uh, what have you chosen? Of course, like many other people, I was thinking about travelling. So after my many travels to the Aeolian Islands like Stromboli, Lipari, Salina, even this very small Filikudi and Alikudi, I thought I finally have to go to Pantelleria. This Italian island is actually closer to Africa. It's very close to Tunisia. And I'd like to go there since years. <laughs> now, I've read by chance a newspaper article of a friend of mine. And she wrote, it's the most beautiful place to get bored. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and this touched my heart. What a nice description of a place. And then she wrote also that people arriving by plane on the islands are at first view very disappointed. And this was the se second argument for me to go there because I just love places, destinations that I have to discover. I actually hate those picture-perfect paradises when you step out of the plane and everything is just colorful and nice. So Pantelleria is on my list for 2022. Apparently the capers there are amazing, even if it's a bit blustery. I think the disappointment might come from the wind, oh. which apparently <laughs> is know. buffeting you. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't know, island life, I just love the sound of that Marcella. I mean, it sounds wonderful. And Gillian, what's caught your eye? This well, month? you know, we've all been lucky with the streaming platforms that we could just see so much during lockdown. But for me, I just adore going to the movies. And I've just 
decided that um, I want to try and make an effort to try and go to movies where the directors are actually there and talking about their films after. An example of this is a film that has just stayed with me ever since I saw it over the weekend. It's called Memory Box. It's a Lebanese film. The filmmakers are Juana Haji Thomas and Khalil George. And it is so wonderful because it's based on a true story of when she was in her early teens, her best friend went to Paris during the Civil War and they promised to write to each other every day. And 20 years later, her letters and her cassettes and her scrapbooks were returned to her. And when she saw them, all the little collages that teenagers make for their besties, she decided that there was a story about this. And the film is a love letter to friendship. It's a love letter to Beirut. And what captivated me as a filmmaker is the notebooks and the sounds inform the way the film is made. And so then it comes back to my first point about then we had the privilege after seeing the film, which is so moving, to hear the directors, their choices, why they made them, how they put it together. And I just think that just made it such a rich experience after everything's been so digital that I want to make a point this year of going to, to, to films with directors speaking and book readings by authors because, you know, I, I think we're lucky in a city to have that on our doorstep now. And the collective sort of emotional experience of watching something together um, I've really missed. And I saw the trailer for Memory Box and it looks... So vivid, this coming of age in the context of Beirut, you know, under siege, really, and how you can live a relatively joyous teenage life, you know, and actually get used to all this terror and destruction around you. It's very moving, considering the context that we're living in and the situation there at the moment. Exactly. And going back, that was a time when, you know, teenagers wrote letters and there's a nostalgia to that. But then also there's that kind of what we are missing by you know, social media and things all digitally, that there you have page after page of notebooks with illustrations and caricatures and sticky things. And it's a collage of a life. It's, it's really quite exceptional. One for us to watch, Marcella. I'm <laughs> booking my seat now. I'm curious, Sophie. I always love your tips and guidance for us. Well, I have been actually this week to Carousel, which was a restaurant not far from here in Marlborough, and they've got a new, as of the end of last year, a new beautiful home on Charlotte Street, and it's four floors next to the Charlotte Street Hotel. And it's such an interesting concept because, I mean... In the situation we've been in over the last few months and years, we haven't travelled as much. And Carousel actually brings in amazing chefs from all around the world and sets them up as a kind of temporary installation. And it's so wonderful to be able to just nip down there. And when I went, there was um, a beautiful chef from Paris. She's got a little bar in Belleville called Julie Coote. And she was just rustling up these wonderful, really quite creative, sort of Japanese-inspired delights. They have Dimitrios Mudos from Ernst in Berlin. He's just been there. And these places we all want to go to so desperately have kind of come to London. So people can have this moment and this kind of lovely connection with cities and chefs that they hope to go to one day um, or soon, but <laughs> can't quite at the moment. I love the name. It is Carousel and it is this turning carousel where it's the discovery of a new chef and how they curate it. And I think that's what makes it so wonderful. It is the surprise. And I suppose real foodies would make a destination to go and do a trip revolved around these chefs. And this restaurant just brings them to us. And it's a sense of the kind of global food scene really and that how everyone's connected and inspired 
they're touring, you know, they might be in Santiago one year and then move to some other capital in Tokyo. And it does give you that sense of how global the food world and industry has become. And actually, it's been very inspiring just looking at their roster for me, editing Confect and seeing these characters and sort of getting to know their work, as it were. <laughs> Marcella, I imagine you are a bit of a foodie. Have you ever been to a city just to visit a restaurant? Just? No, never. <laughs> there, is not, there is never just one reason to visit the city. I will tell you instantly many more. But a funny thing is that I met once a chief that I actually I ate in his restaurant in Paris and then I met him in a, like a little, little, it was in Comporta in Portugal in spring. It was empty, nobody there. And he was setting up their pop-up restaurant. So this was very nice to meet somebody from Paris, like on an empty beach town in Portugal. And with completely different menus because he was inspired, of course, by the regional ingredients and fish and everything from Portugal. So... I could follow a chief. <laughs> That's worth a field trip. <laughs> I would go there. Next, we visit the studio of lingerie and swimwear designer Cecily Travers, who founded her brand Isosceles in 2016. Her approach isn't about designing lingerie for the male gaze or the purposes of seduction, but instead creating bold and playful pieces that reflect the joy of intimate dressing. Isosceles' upcoming spring-summer collection is a 13-piece wonder of soft Italian tulle and Japanese elastic with lettuce-edged ruched separates in lilac and black. The brand's overlapping sheer panels and modular approach take on a more romantic feel. On a crisp winter's morning, Confect's Paige Reynolds joined Sicily at her South London studio to find out more about her approach to design, what led her to lingerie and the complicated business of how lingerie should make you feel. My mum was a big influence on me. She has studied fashion and when I was growing up she worked at the Royal Ballet School as the wardrobe mistress so she was sort of in charge of all the costumes and she had this lovely workroom with tutus in it and all the headdresses and makeup and all the things that the ballerinas would wear for performances but she also actually started her own business making leotards for the dancers because they couldn't find good leotards and so she started sourcing fabric and doing it all herself. She had old designs from when she was at school of like silk underwear that she'd made from her younger years and I was fascinated with it. And then when I was a teenager, I started, I asked her to teach me how to make underwear, how to kind of like attach elastic and stuff. And I started making knickers because I was wearing baggy jeans and I wanted nice knickers showing over the waistband. And then I wanted to be an illustrator, but I dropped out of a fine art degree. I started working at Rigby and Pella, the famous underwear shop that makes the Queen's knickers. <laughs> And when I was there, I found out about this degree in underwear design. You could do it to Montford University. I started the brand about six years ago just by finding some fluorescent mesh in Shepherd's Bush and playing around with it. Just something fell into place and I thought, I've got to try and do this. So that's how it started. You've just come back from Rome. You were in Rome for, for three years. What, what was the thinking behind moving there was it kind of a brand move or maybe it was a more personal thing and I guess what what did being in Rome mean for you both from kind of a creative and a, and a business perspective 
Yeah, I moved to Rome just on in a kind of impulsive flight of just wanting to run away from London for a bit, I suppose. Up until then, I, I think I'd done two collections since then, and I was making it in Wales in a factory that, a small factory in Wales, and it actually by sort of coincidence the same time as I moved to Italy that factory actually closed down and so I feel like it might have been the last factory that was making underwear in the UK so I did it for personal reasons but actually worked out quite well for business because I started making stuff in Italy instead it worked well for me because I was still very small and I could produce stuff in quite small quantities there creatively I think it was just nice to be away from London and maybe I just wanted the escapism of feeling like no one could really see what I was doing. I could sort of change what I thought my brand should be. So I started to change from this idea of very kind of straight lines, architectural geometry and being a bit more free with my designs. We're kind of looking at your sort of main design and sort of making setup here could you maybe describe the designs we're looking at on the wall and and the kind of colors and the types of fabrics you've you've got out to to test my inspiration for autumn winter 22 i'm looking at pasta and showgirls (laughs) i don't know maybe it's like a homage to rome um i just thought it would be fun to get some food inspiration involved so I'm using yellows to reflect the kind of eggy fresh pasta and wiggly lines and and then I guess like the showgirl thing I've always really loved where underwear sort of meets costume and that sort of like Rio Carnival thing where you know people just really dress up and so I wanted to do something about that so I kind of mix them together. I usually use mesh in my design so I've got this yellow stretchy mesh, some sort of wiggly, it's called rickrack, that sort of wiggly elastic. Usually it's not stretchy, but I found some stretchy stuff and I thought that would be quite cute. It's quite pastory, like ravioli edges or something. I love pasta and there's a kind of sensuality to it. So I thought maybe it'd be quite a nice combination. When you're designing, are you designing with a specific like type of woman in mind? And that's not necessarily sizing at all, but just like the kind of woman who wears your lingerie, like who do you kind of imagine them to, to be? I think about me and what I'd like to wear, but then often an idea is not is something I think other people might like, but not necessarily what I'd wear. So maybe a woman who's creative and is also quite playful and think probably a woman who's obsessed with underwear like I am really it's like a kind of obsession with the things that fit closely to the body and how those pieces can change the way you feel about your body and I love the ability of underwear to kind of change the way you perceive your body I think that possibly that's what my customer likes about my brand I hope that someone could put something on of mine and it make them feel much more confident. That would be great. Feeling like you're wearing something that fits you really well can give you a sense of confidence and maybe powerfulness. So it has that power, but also I don't really think about sort of the male gaze or seduction when I'm designing. It's much more just about what the buyer wants to feel 
I have a lot of pieces that are modular with size. For example, this Radicchio bra I have, one size spans many because it's not underwired and it's very gathered. Um, so you can wear it in lots of different ways. And so I try and offer things like that, that, you know, that people could find a way to wear that they like. So they look at themselves in it and like what they see. You're listening to Confet Corner. I'm Sophie Grove. Let's head to Paris to visit one of the city's oldest chocolatiers. At De Beauve and Galais, chocolate is an artisanal craft and a family tradition that goes back more than 200 years. Now the chocolate makers, once loved by Marie Antoinette, are working to evolve with the times while staying true to what makes them quite so unique. Convex Colette Davidson visited de Beauvais-Galais at their historical shop in Saint-Germain-des-Prés and has this report. It's a sleepy Monday morning in Paris. Tourists and Parisians alike are beginning to wake up and get their coffee at Les Deux Magots, the cafe much loved by Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. And it's never too early for a bit of chocolate. De Beauvais-Galais, one of Paris's oldest chocolate makers, is just around the corner from here. I came in the store very, 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 very long time ago, and I had that memory of that specific chocolate shop in that street, and today I happened to pass the neighborhood in the same street, and I figured out I have to get in and get me something, a little something sweet. The shop that houses De Beauvais chocolate dates back to 1818. A half-moon-shaped countertop in its original wood shows off piles of cocoa-dusted truffles and chocolate ganache squares, daring customers to resist temptation. A series of white columns line the inner walls, and at the top of each is a curling bronze snake, a classic symbol used by French pharmacies. That's because de Beauvais-Galais has its origins in health and wellness, and a man named Sulpice de Beauve. Sulpice de Beauve was the son of a physicist, and it was due to be physicist, but he, he disliked such job. He was born in the... Enlightenment period and study a lot and he become a chemist and pharmacist. That's Bernard Poussin, the general director of De Beauvais-Galais and an eighth generation member of the family business. He works in the upstairs office with his associate Diane Junique. Family relics line the walls, including original paintings of Sulpice de Beauve. In this period, many people were look at cocoa because cocoa comes from America. Uh, cocoa has a lot of uh, qualities and, and so he studied and he was the first in France to devise the first solid chocolate, chocolate to crunch. Before the chocolate was something quite soft and was used to make drinks, but it was soft, okay? So he succeeded to separate what we call the cocoa mass and the cocoa butter and to mix them again uh, very um, intimately. And the result was uh, the chocolate is hard. This solid chocolate was of special interest to Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, in the year 1779, who suffered from headaches. One day, he, he, he showed to the Queen uh, uh, the result of uh, his, his search, that is to say, the, the crunchy chocolate, the chocolate to crunch. 
Marie-Antoinette was a, a young lady accustomed to take a lot of medicine. She, she took that. And so Sulpice proposed them to, to mix that with cocoa. Cocoa has a strong taste. And in fact, it covers easily uh, all the medicine. Marie-Antoinette was accustomed to drink hot chocolates. But as we imagine, when you put medicine in hot chocolate, the, the, the taste is worst. But in, in, the, in cold chocolate, in, uh, in dark, in uh, hard chocolate, you, you do not feel such taste. So he transformed in powder many, many products the queens were accustomed to, to take and mix with chocolate. The first time Sulpice de Beauve made the mixture, he put it into the shape of a pistole, or Spanish gold coin. The name stuck, and now de Beauvegale sell their Marie Antoinette pistoles with great success, minus the headache medicine. Since the era of Marie Antoinette, de Beauvegale chocolate has continued to be enjoyed by the French elite and nobility. Its fleur-de-lis caramel ganache was a favorite of Charles X, the last king of France. And novelist Marcel Proust was such a fan that de Beauvegale created a chocolate shaped like a madeleine in honor of his classic work in search of lost time. Now, however, generations of ordinary people from around the world make up a large part of their customer base. We have many tourists. In fact, they, they are regular customers from generations. And sometimes they show us, they come with old cases. They say, oh, you, you know, I found old cases of a company 50 or 100 years ago. Do you have any, any paraphernalia from your family's history? It is a chocolate case, so it is laser, it is paper, laser, and painting under a glass. It was made for the king. It is 1824, 1825. It was for a wedding when the king offered chocolate. Of course, it is not right in the Beauvais of course, because uh, uh, at, at this time, when you were a provider, so you would not put your brand, you, you only... Right, and it's, it has a gold rim, and what, who is this on the cover? Uh, it's, a, it's a wedding, so it's supposed to be the, the lady who will marry, uh, I don't know, not either. Of course, it's a, it's a noble lady, but Beautiful. we do not have the... The name. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, and I see you have. It looks like you have some old cases, some chocolate. Yes, cases. Yes, or old paper cases. You do, for instance, just to love that it was a, a chocolate to put in water. Huh? In fact, the device uh, is uh, dated 1830, 1832. It's the first chocolate to put in put in water or in milk. It's instant chocolate. The history that makes de Beauvais-Galley so unique is something the company has fought hard to preserve, but they're committed to finding the highest quality sources of cocoa in the world and keeping other ingredients local when they can. It's part of what sets them apart, says Bernard Poussin. The ingredient, the cocoa, is from uh, Cocoa Cradles, that is to say, uh, the central of uh, Latin America. Huh? Uh, and after for the other product, but we use most of the time product of France, but we try to find the best, for instance, for the chestnuts that come from the region of Turin, because they're supposed to be the best, and the almond from Sicilia, because they're supposed to be the best. Okay, and sugar is always canned sugar, but after for the other product, because they come from France, the, the milk, the cream, uh, come from France. De Beauvais-Galais have allowed their products to follow the times and evolve naturally. It's not that they want to stay stuck in the past, but there's a sense of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We also chose to our tradition because to move has no interest. All the others have moved. So we stay as we are. Uh, we, we, we keep quite a temple of traditional French chocolates. Some people still love. And love it they do. 
But while buying chocolate for those we love may be popular in other parts of the world, it's not what keeps customers coming back every year to buy chocolate at De Beauvais Galais, says Bernard Poussin. More connoisseurs than people who buy to offer, except still some old ladies for their grandchildren. <laughs> People who prefer something else. Well, my, my dad always oui. offered me chocolate okay. for okay. Valentine's Day. Yeah, yes, yes. It's the last generation. Yeah. <laughs> It's the last generation. For Confect in Paris, I'm Colette Davidson. Sophie, you've actually been to Dubove et Galais when you're in Paris. What is the experience like? Oh, so beautiful and so rarefied in only the way that the Parisians can pull it off, really. Such beautiful packaging as well. I bought a sort of book with sort of leather and then inside of these perfect, perfect little truffles. And you'd keep the packet, well, the you know case forever, really, once you've polished off the truffles. <laughs> and is there a ritual of choosing and a ritual of them, you know, selecting them for you? Is there a bit of a ritual there when you're in the in the shop? Oh, yeah, and just the I don't it's quite rustic in a way. It's not absolute perfection that you'd find in some Belgian chocolate. It's got a sort of sense of like beautiful rum and sort of cognac kind of husks of amazing sort of just beautiful kind of powdery truffles and I don't know, they're just all dreamy and you could spend hours in there. And then they have these tiny little kind of wafer thin, they look like discs, and I think that's what Marie Antoinette um, <laughs> favoured. <laughs> so, but what I love about it, it has that history. It survived the, you know, the French Revolution and, you know, countless wars. But there isn't, it doesn't feel like a tourist corner. The people shopping there are locals and, you know, Parisians just getting their... <laughs> the provisions for the month. <laughs> It's so refreshing to see that. Marcella, do you have a favorite confectioner or sweet something you've come across on your travels? Yeah, actually, I walk every morning, I walk by Sprüngli at Paradeplatz. And I wonder that you didn't mention Springly because it's actually also, they have so many good chocolates and little cakes and whatever. I think I know everything. And so I'm quite spoiled. What I discovered lately and what is something really unique and I don't know anything comparable in the world is uh, polverones. Do you know polverones? No. You don't? Yeah. I don't. So. <laughs> I don't. I just say it's, that. <laughs> it's, it's so strange because it's so good. It's a kind of almond pastry cookies that are from south of Spain that are like a little, let's say, desert storm in your mouth. I saw them only the first time, I think it was in uh, the Canary Islands and then after that in Sound of Spain and you think, what is that? Almond, I like almond. You put it in your mouth and then it's really, it's so unique. It's kind of an explosion of almonds and fine, fine pastry. It's really exceptional. And Every time I go there, I'm looking for polverones. I love the description of a desert storm in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also pulver and polverones. You see, there must be a connection. I know 
you you love a, a chocolate yeah. from time to time. Do you have any anything to match the polverone? Oh God! Well, <laughs> I just love luxuriating in the decadence of chocolate, and to me, it's the decadence of watching them being made. I kind of favour some of the more smaller contemporary artisanal chocolate makers, and there's one on Ledbury Road called Melt, and I think the name says it all because they have at the back of the shop a beautiful little white kitchen where they hand make most of the chocolates there and you can just spend hours watching the oozing hypnotic chocolate and the caramel and the nuts and it's just so luxuriously decadent and then their packaging is quite contemporary beautifully graphic lots of illustrations and so when you then choose and you make your selection of whichever individual chocolates are so gorgeously wrapped in these little kind of contemporary boxes and particularly over Christmas I thought it was quite ingenious they did their own advent calendar and because they're based in Notting Hill every time you opened a little the doors there were little pastel houses like the pastel houses in Notting Hill and inside the pastel house was a chocolate so they're very good on seasonal and Halloween and Valentine's Day and Easter they come up with wonderful packaging and graphics for their handmade chocolates oh it's heavenly and sometimes it's the playfulness and that sense of escapism I see it when I take my children to sweet shops they're transported and actually we all are when they get it right especially you know Parisian sweet shops those absolutely kind of beautiful candy cane style I think we all go back to being about eight well you must must take your children here because they do chocolate making classes and for children they make these chocolate lollies with all sorts of decorations that the children can do in class so I think they would enjoy that you could maybe join Join. (laughs) Now we cross to the Alps in Switzerland to meet the father-daughter team behind a Lindauer. It's no surprise that in this winter sports crazy region, the family firm has become synonymous with the finest and fastest sledges on the slopes. Convex Desiree Bandley grabbed her best winter boots and paid Joe Lindauer a visit at the company's workshop. On the Monday morning in the beautiful, snowy canton of Schwyz, the Lindauer team are already in full swing. People bend skids into the desired shape with a massive hammer whilst wood gets sanded down in the other corner of the workshop. The sawdust coats everything in a light brown colour. I find Cholin Lauer by one of the many machines in the workshop. He's the grandson of the company's founder, Josef Maria Lindauer Romer, and now runs the business with his daughters Viola and Medea. It is a family business. I don't need to work anymore, but it's my passion. I can't leave. My daughter, Viola, has been here for 16 years. She did her carpentry apprenticeship here. She runs the sledding department, and I tend to take care of the toboggans. Her husband and my other daughters are here from time to time, too. And my wife, Janine, is in the background on the phone or takes care of the children. It all happens within the family. The factory lies on top of the store. A small window at the front reveals about 40 sledges neatly stacked, giving you a tiny glimpse of all the magic happening in the workshop one floor up. People appreciate that they can buy something directly from the craftsman. That is our strategy and that's why we want to keep it exactly this way. And it's nice to be able to follow the whole process of cutting, constructing and assembling everything directly from the tree trunk to the customer. 
Joe Stoteviola, who did her apprenticeship here, is working in another corner of the factory, putting the signature Lindauer stickers on the sledges. We sell around 250 sledges, depending on the winter we're having. And we sell about 70 toboggans each year too, but that's increasing. If somebody buys one, then their friends will want one too. Tobogganing's getting more popular. Sledging is a more technical sport than you might think. Cho gives me a brief explanation of the different ways you can whoosh down the track. There are two sledge models, ones with longitudinal slats like the Davos sledge and another with cross slats where the craftsmanship is simply a little more pronounced. All our sledges have plastic covers because one tends to go skiing on a track and their plastic covering is better suited than the conventional irons, which get rusty quickly. The scene on the track is usually that others get overtaken by a Lindauer. They look at the name of the sledge and think, wow, that's the one I want. And then they come to our shop and that is always fun. There are three models of toboggan, a leisure one for simple tobogganing adventures. Then there is the sporty version where you sit very low, where you can make more turns. And then there is the top model, which is for ambitious tobogganers. Our sledges and toboggans are relatively complicated to produce as they have many small parts. We need around a hundred steps until it's done. A toboggan even has around 180. Cutting, gluing, milling, bending, bending. You have steel ropes, slabs. It's very elaborate and consists of many single parts. We do them in small batches so it can be done rationally. The toboggan is clearly more expensive to produce. And now it's time to take one out for a test drive. I found out where the nearest hill is and head up with a traditional wooden sledge. The journey on the gondola at the Rotenflut track lets you leave behind civilization, looking down at snow-covered hills and trees where you might even spot a deer if you're lucky. And then you're at the top, ready to take off. It's an exhilarating ride back downhill, experiencing the views we've just seen from above at ground level at much higher speeds. And for Joe Lindauer, this is what makes the job worth doing. Seeing the joy in his customers as they get their adrenaline rush on one of his creations. And of course the joy of the people who still appreciate traditional craftsmanship. I am glad that they really enjoy this and that we can still do it this way. And the joy of the people also comes back to us. For Confect Corner in Schwitz, I'm Desire Bandli. Joe Linda there in conversation with Desiree Bandley. And you can find out more about them in issue five of Confect. And now for a final thought. We turn to the writer Fleur MacDonald, who explains why playing Cupid with people you know is far more effective than swiping through an app. Love is a complicated concoction. Sometimes it's there in a glance, other times it grows slowly. Go on a dating app, my friends tell me when I complain sporadically about my single status. Algorithms can get it right, don't get me wrong, 
that apps make the pursuit of love rather two-dimensional. I can't spend another evening bathed in the blue light of my screen. Worse, I don't want to think about a prospective love interest doing the same. Until recently, relationships were as much a matter for the community as the two individuals involved. I'm not advocating a return to arranged marriages, but we should expect a little more help from our friends. And I don't mean via advice on profile pictures or whether to swipe right or not. Instead, they should be scouring their contacts, family, friends, colleagues, or even their exes, for any potential matches. It's only fair that I should declare myself an expert in matchmaking. I have two marriages and one long-term relationship under my belt. In my mind, it's been a game of quantity over quality, as those three are the only relationships that have lasted. I consider it a matter of karma. If you set people up, they might return the favour. But mostly, it's the puck in me. If it doesn't work out, I've been meddlesome. But if it does work out, I can meddle forever. The longest-lasting couple are two men, a teacher and a designer. The former was a university friend, the latter my housemate's colleague. They hit it off. The second couple, who now have an elfish-looking little boy, belonged together, I decided, because they both had brown hair and were Irish. They did not dare disagree. For the third couple, I told the man that I had the perfect woman for him and let slip her name. He did an online search and emailed her, warning her not to listen to a word I might say about him. I chaperoned their first meeting. She wore leather trousers. He then wrote her letters for a year. She's now pregnant. My endorsement bought him enough time to convince her of his prowess, epistolary or otherwise. Needless to say, she would never have found him on a dating app. Of course, there are many occasions where it hasn't worked out. One couple I set up at a dinner party were kissing in the corridor before pudding, but they broke up less than a year later. I've been told in no uncertain terms to ignore the man if I ever run into him. But when it works, matchmaking is a joyous process that doesn't end. I've cracked drunken jokes while giving wedding speeches, not quite comprehending the gravity of the situation. Only a few years later, it has become clear. These two people, once strangers, have looked after one another through good times and bad. They have held each other's hands leaving hospital after a miscarriage or watching their son as he builds his first sandcastle. They will have been together while one gives birth and they will probably be together when one of them dies. It could start with a blind date or a throwaway comment or an introduction at a party, but it could grow into so much more than that. I won't deny that there's something self-centered about matchmaking, the assumption that you can play gods with other people's love lives. You'll always be mentioned whenever the couple are asked the inevitable question, how did you two meet? But regardless of motives, it's time you did the right thing. Host that dinner party, organize that activity, swap those numbers and match your friends. Well, wow, I can say that I'm is it. <laughs> it's quite quite a, an instruction from Fleur there. But I do think that people, even if it's very subtle, she is obviously pretty hands-on at this puck business. But I, I do think that it's good to kind of think of your friends and then sort of 
subtly, you know, invite them all over for a meal and, you know, see what happens. Do we have a responsibility, Dillian? Well, I, I mean, I just think people are made to feel a little guilty for meddling and they don't do it anymore. But actually, it's a gift. It's a gift because what can go wrong is just surely it's much better to, to meet a potential life match face-to-face, surrounded by, by friends and laughter and wine than on a screen. And I just don't think people do it enough because they, they just think, oh, I shouldn't interfere and I don't want to put a spotlight on the fact that these people are single. I don't want to make them to feel the odd ones out. When in fact, no, I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do. Marcella, have you ever been matchmade? Me? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever been matched? I don't know. <laughs> you never know, actually. No, but I, I think it's just that don't think so far. I mean, if you invite people for dinner, friends for dinner, um, I think it's not the best idea to invite like four or five couples. It's always good to mix it up with persons that are uh, alone at the moment and then it happens naturally. I never think, ah, this could be something or not or those are just friends and just the fact that our friends of mine is already like let's say a possibility that they might or could match if they are interested i suppose it's really cross pollination more than matchmaking isn't it just throwing wonderful people you adore together and just seeing what happens and i think we all have friends that are those people who you can see they delight in that just matching friends with friends and then they sort of let you run. Other people are a bit more sort of, they compartmentalise people and they keep everyone separate. But I do love those people that sort of throw everyone in and say, you want to love this person, you know, go meet up with them, go on holiday with them. And you think it's that type of generosity, um, I think is what Fleur is really talking about. It's the confidence, but also it's kind of a joy in just people in general. Well, that's all we have time for this time. Thank you to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company again. Our winter issue of Confect is out now. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>